this has been a great series. It's been really intriguing and having just a lot of incredible conversations. And I know just from talking to many of you that you have kept the conversation going, um, which has also been really important and valuable. Uh, just to reorient us once again, this concept, Bless Alliance, comes uh, from uh, Carolyn Custis James. She's a Christian author, uh, and actually she teaches at um, Cairn University, a Christian college in Philly. And she defines the Blessed Alliance this way. The Blessed Alliance is God's plan for male and female image bearers to serve him together in every sphere of life. And when you put that every sphere of life, ultimately what's implied there, what's suggested is God's kingdom is really at stake in this blessed alliance. And we talked about from the very beginning, when you look at Genesis 1 and 2 and, and you see God shape Adam and Eve and give them the commission, the cultural mandate to uh, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. He does that in the context of them saying, you are my image bearers. And, and so that is the contact. That's what it is. That's what we're about. And yet at the same time, we recognize that very early on, matter of fact, the next chapter by chapter three, we see that alliance broken through sin and through selfishness. And so throughout this journey, we've been looking at how God is looking to build that back up again. Um, and we've talked about that in the context of work last week, in the context of marriage before that. And today we want to look at singleness. And as I said, so the, the, the theme and the context is living single, right? Now we talked about, you know, you heard the song for those that don't know, hit 90s comedy um, that was based in New York City. And that looked through the lives of these friends who were also single at the time. So you had Khadijah and Kyle and Regine and Sinclair and Max and Overton. And they were fully formed people and we got to be entertained by their highs and lows. Some were blue collar. Some were professional, some were in relationships, some weren't. But the thing that's interesting, have you noticed that oftentimes, whether it's a show like that or moving up to other ones, that, and by the way, just a little bit of an interesting fact, Friends was actually based off of Living Single, by the way. That's true. That's where they got the idea for Friends from. So interesting how that happens. But here's the thing. Have you noticed that oftentimes singleness in the world seems to be easier and even healthier than in the church? That's true. It's true, right? So, 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 so here's one thing that Carolyn Custis James, but what, what's at stake? So you might say, so what? There's a lot riding on this blessed alliance. This isn't just a cute idea. James puts it this way. She says, when male-female relationships in the church are uneasy and distrustful, when we splinter, divide, and cautiously hold one another at arm's length, we are sending false messages to the world of what God is like. Because you see, we're supposed to be his image bearers, right? Like we're supposed to be a reflection and a, and a demonstration of what this is supposed to look like. So when we get it wrong, they go, oh, that, that must be what it looks like. I don't, no thank you. So there's a lot writing on this thing. Now, it makes me ask the question, well, why is it that we kind of get off on this thing in the church so oftentimes? Like, what, what is it about? Why, why does it get weird, right, so frequently, especially as it relates to singles and singleness? Well, I believe it has something to do with the fact that um, of our culture's obsession. Now, recently, and again, um, I'm an Ariana Grande fan. I think she has 
strong pipes. I'm, you know, I'm, you know, no shade on her. But she came out with a song this week, just on Friday, called God is a Woman. And the interesting thing in the song is basically the premise of the song is that your experience with me is going to be so dynamic spiritually, sexually, that I'm going to actually change your theology. And you're going to think God must be a woman to have me experience this. And, and, and what this is, but what it so perfectly captures is the problem in our culture that so idolizes and prioritizes erotic and romantic experiences that it makes them on par with theological ones. So that's the problem over just the air that we breathe, right? It's all around and you go and listen to a song, it's nine times out of 10 about a relationship. You watch a TV show, nine times, a movie, whatever. It's just what our culture is obsessed with. So this is what we do as a church. So then we go, okay, the world is sinning and people are fornicating and lustful. So we're going to run completely far away from that. And then so the solution, right, because you still have to, you know, have these urges. Okay, you go get married. And so if you just get married, then that will solve the problem. And so therefore marriage becomes the pentacle and the solution to the reflection. But either way, it's an obsession that's based on the wrong thing. Right? Even if it's just like, okay, y'all just need to get married. Like, so... The issue is our culture's obsession with romantic love is reflected in the church's overemphasis on marriage. And as, you know, what we heard earlier, right, you know, this aspect where Tim was saying that somehow it, there's like this stage of Christian maturity and growth in that if I haven't attained, I haven't put, if someone hasn't put a ring on it, then that means that I'm not, I'm somehow a second-class Christian citizen in the church. That oftentimes is what it can feel like and seem like and be like. But... It ought not be so. Author Sam Albury puts it this way. He says, singleness is not the absence of marriage, but it is a good and blessed thing in and of itself. And parenthetically, one of the challenges, Sam Albury, uh, someone who identifies as having same-sex attraction, and so he is committed to be celibate for his life in order to follow and walk with Jesus. And what he's saying is part of the problem where that seems so astronomically bad and, and crazy in our culture's mind, but also in the church's mind, is because we so idolize the thing that it makes it seem like an ultimate thing. But what he says here is that no. It's, singleness shouldn't just be defined as the absence of marriage, but a blessing in and of itself. But here's the problem. When we idolize romance, we devalue friendship. The one directly relates to the other. And, and so this is why we have to lift up and elevate what it is that the whole counsel of God teaches. Now, again, marriage is a blessing. It's a beautiful thing, but it's not an ultimate thing. In fact, it is just a reflection of a greater thing to come. I don't want to get ahead of myself. Okay. So first point is that the blessed alliance calls us to be kingdom-minded. Now, kingdom-minded is different from being self or sensually minded. What do I mean by that? Well, we're going to break that down. Because we kind of sang about it already. We've been singing about this kingdom. And then when we look at the kingdom that Jesus is coming to inaugurate and to establish, then you recognize that part of its key demonstrative marker is people who are seeking a higher good than their own selves. And that higher good is expressed in a certain type of love. You know, in Greek, there are four different expressions of love, four different words that kind of, if you break down, uh, they point to different elements of what we call love. There's eros, and eros has to do with romantic love, right? It's, it's, it's the dating, it's the marriage, it's the sensual love, it's, it's the expression of that. It's where we get the word erotic from. 
But that's just one aspect. So in Greek, that would be eros. Then there's storge. And storge has to do with familial love and commitment. This is what a, a father would have to, for a daughter or a mother to a son. There's this aspect of that kind of, of, of affection and commitment to one another. Now, most of us have heard of agape. Agape is that unconditional God's love, which is the one that centers and, found, and makes is foundational to all the other ones. But then there's another one that we often forget about. And the, and, and, and the reason why, we, and the result of us forgetting about it means that we have unbalanced and unfulfilled Christian lives. This is how C.S. Lewis put it in his book, The Four Loves, where he breaks down these four loves. He says, Eros will have naked bodies, friendship naked personalities. So what, what, what Lewis is saying here is that, yeah, yeah, there's, there's an element, there's, there's, a, there's some experiences and some blessings involved with, with, with eroticism, but that only takes you so far. That there's another type of experience of love and of intimacy and of connection, of being completely transparent and completely known in who you are, that that won't get you there. And it's why I call philo, uh, it's philia, phileo, the forgotten love. Now, phileo has to do with this sense of brotherly love. Now, I'm from Philly, Philadelphia, which literally means city of phileo, of brotherly love. And, and, and this idea of love is so significant that William Penn, the founder of the city, says, I want to actually brand this community to be a place that should be a, a vision of utopia where we could actually experience brotherly, sisterly affection for one another together. Now, as a resident of Philadelphia for a long time, I said, we got a long way to go to express that. But nevertheless, that was the vision. And so when we get there, we realize that this is actually, when we understand these four dynamics, and again, you can see phileo and agape spoken of multiple times throughout Scripture, especially in the New Testament. And so what we're going to do today is just kind of do a survey of the New Testament as it relates to these different elements of how God talks about singleness and how this aspect of phileo and commitment and covenant and community together all come together. All right. Now, before we go there, we have to start with one person in particular, the guy that wrote most of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, who was single his entire life. And look at what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He says, I wish that all people were as I am. <laughs> this is interesting. This is actually quite fascinating in relationship to how most of us think about singleness or how other people, as Tim said, look at our own singleness. What Paul is saying is, yo, like, not only is this dope, <laughs> but I actually wish this for everybody. And, that, and he's talking to, parenthetically, a church that in Corinth, Corinth was much like New York City. It was a port city that many people from all over the world go to. And whenever you get a port city, when you got people from all over, it tends to have a very permissive culture. It tends to have a culture where people are just like, oh, what you into? You into that? I'm into this? Cool, whatever. And so most of the time when you read the book of Corinthians, he's actually chastising and challenging them to have their sexual ethics actually reflect what they should as Christians. But look at what he says as he goes on to explain why he wishes that all people were as he in terms of his singleness. He says, I want you to be without concern. The unmarried man is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But the married man is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. Then he goes on, just thinking, like, oh, I'm gonna talk, I got something for the women too. He says, the unmarried woman or the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord so that she may be both 
holy both in body and spirit. But the married woman is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. I'm saying this for your own benefit, not to put a restraint on you, but to promote what is proper and so that you may be devoted to the Lord without distraction. Isn't this in stark contrast to the story that Tim told? about the assumption and the, the, the sense and the pressure even that somehow something's wrong with him because he, he has almost like he has a communicable disease called like singleness that somebody is trying to cure him of when they come to find out that he has it. And then Paul is saying here like, yo, I wish all of y'all were like me because there's this aspect where you could be fully committed. And when you and re, just read Paul's life. I mean, when you look in the book of Acts, right, you see this time where he's praying. And then while he's praying, he gets this vision from the man of Macedonia saying, please help us. And he just picks up his stuff and just goes off to Macedonia. He gets, you know, uh, just arrested for his faith. He's proclaiming it. And he's just going wherever the Lord sends him to go. Now, Lest we think I'm saying that somehow there's something wrong with marriage. I'm not saying that. Of course, uh, as some of you know, uh, Tamika and I celebrated last week 17 years of being married. Yes, 17 years. It's a dope thing. It's a dope thing. And so that's a blessing. And yet at the same time, I understand what uh, the Apostle Paul is talking about. And in fact, this actually gets captured in uh, media. I don't know if it's my awareness of the Blessed Alliance that's causing me to see this and now when I go to movies or is it just this is what, the, you know, people are talking about more. But uh, recently, uh, the movie The Incredibles 2 came out and there's some dynamic pictures of this alliance there. Don't worry, I'm not going to do a spoiler so you don't got worried about it. But in the first Incredibles, there's this inc incredible scene where Frozone is trying to go and rescue, you know what I mean, things. So what is happening is he's seeing destruction around him, right? And now the problem is he and his wife had a night on the town plan. They had an evening plan. So she's in the bathroom getting ready, and then he takes his remote to push the button to reveal where he keeps his super suit. But the place where he left it, where he last known that for it to be, it wasn't there. So he says, uh, honey, where's my super suit? And so he asked the question, and now she not only is like gives a non-direct and specific answer, but also she's a little bit irritated because she knows like, wait a minute, if you're looking for your super suit, that means you're trying to go do something. He was like, honey, it's for the greater good. And then she says, I'm the greatest good you'll ever want. <laughs> and there's this tension in this argument, but the reality is I can, as married people, we can relate to two things when it comes to this. One, there's this tendency for stuff to not be where you left it. Right? Like, I'm like, yo, he had a whole place like a, that was imprinted where a super suit was supposed to be. Why isn't it not there where I put it? <laughs> so things kind of get misplaced and I, you know. But then on the flip side, there's this element where it's like I have to now realize that I can't just go out. Frozone can't just decide to leave and depart and have no uh, conversation and no sense of even uh, connection with, with his wife and what's supposed to happen. And so what Paul is saying is as a married person, there's a added challenge and complication to that. But as a single person, you don't have. You can just kind of go, you know what I mean, wherever. Like job sends you someplace and you're like, okay, yeah, let's go. Let's do that. There's not a whole sense of conversation of what does that mean for the kids? What does that mean, you know, for me and my job? There's, there's a, a, a freedom there. 
But in a deeper level, it also relates to what we see in Romans 8, 28. And this is for all of us, whether you're married, whether you're single, whether you boot up, whether you're not. Romans 8, 28 through 30 is for us. It says, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Man, we could spend the whole rest of the time on this, but let me just highlight a few things. First of all, the most significant and important part of this word in this passage is all, three-letter word, A-L-L. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God. Not some things, not the occasional thing, every single thing. And then he explains what that good is. So we hear that verse sometimes and we misapply it. Oh, all things work together for my good, so I know I'm getting that job. All things work together for my good, so I know I'm getting in that relationship. All things work together for the good, so I know. No, he explains. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. See, the foreknowledge is important because he said, I knew who you were before you were. And so I know what you need, not just what you want. Because sometimes the things that we need aren't the things that we want. So I know what you need in order to be conformed into the image of my son. And now notice and look at this aspect of conformity. It has a, a picture of a powder with clay that it's shaping and moving. But guess what? You can't shape something unless you apply pressure to it. So I need to conform you to the image of your son using pressure and things that you may not like or want. But then look at the image of the son, right? We started off this thing talking about how we're image bearers. God makes Adam and Eve in his image. And now he's saying, I am remaking you and reshaping you. And sometimes I'm pushing out the things that make you not look like me. So anything in your life that you put in a higher priority, <clears throat> including relationships, God might be pushing that out in this moment to make you into the image of your son so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. That blessed alliance right there. Now, many of us are familiar with the song or the idea because our brother Travis Green has blessed us with the song Intentional. And we sing the refrain, all things are working for my good. Why? Because he's intentional, right? Now, I have a question. We sing it, but do we believe that God is intentional with our singleness? Because if he is, then that means that that also is one of the things he's working for our good. Because he's intentional, never changing. So that's the first point, that when we're kingdom-minded, we recognize that God is intentional and that he's using all things for our good and that there's so many components and aspects of what it looks like to experience phileo, love, that, that go beyond what our culture says and even sometimes, oftentimes what our church says. The second point, though, gets us to the rub. Now, we're going to spend a lot of time here because this is where the challenge is. The Blessed Alliance calls us to mutual submission. <laughs> mutual submission. In the stories that we've already heard about the Blessed Alliance, right, we talked about Esther and Mordecai last week and how they had to submit one to the other in terms of accomplishing the plan of God's mission. Esther had to listen to Mordecai's challenge to confront a wicked king who was trying to seek the annihilation of the Jews. Mordecai had to submit to Esther's challenge to gather the people and pray and intercede and fast. But this word submission is for many people in our culture, in our times, a bad word. 
It's one of the most profane words that you could say. Now, in a sense, I understand this because literally we celebrated Independence Day, which is a day that is marked as a reaction and a rebellion against tyranny. So literally, as, as Americans, our, our national identity is formed around a sense of rebelling or not submitting to authority. And then, of course, if you go even deeper into the history, you realize that even this, all the life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness had to be challenged and subverted again because that was only for certain folk. And so this issue of submission comes with much baggage for many of us, but we have to return to the original intent and sense of the word. So first of all, let's define it. What do we mean? First, we mean it's to give over or yield to the power or authority of another. That's what it means, to, to give over or yield to the power or authority of another. The second definition is similar. It's to present for the approval, consideration, or decision of another. So in the first sense of the word, it means like, you know, when you have a boss and they say, hey, I need you to do the job this way and you think it should go another way. And it's like being it's submitted is to say, okay, well, I'm going to do it your way even because I'm going to submit to your authority. The other sense of taking into a consideration or presenting for approval is more like, the, you know, your friends are saying, hey, you know, I think we should go to Yayo's. And you're like, again, Yayo's? Uh, now, nah, how about we look at sushi? And, and that's a, a hot topic in a debate at our church, I know, but, 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 this sense of for consideration says, hey, I, this is an idea, but I'm willing to submit that to the, your, the consensus. I'm willing to submit my desire. I have a taste for something, but you may have a taste for something else. And here's the thing. Submission isn't just about wives or women. It's not just about employees or bosses. Submission isn't even an event. It's a lifestyle. First and foremost, submit it to the Lord. If you look in the actual etymology of the word submit, it comes from the word that says that it actually means sacrificing and yielding to a third party. <laughs> a third party. So if there's one, two people, who's the third party? <laughs> First and foremost, I submit to the Lord. And as I'm submitting to the Lord, that also has implications for how I do community with other people. This is what it says in Philippians 2, 3 through 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everybody should look, look at this, look out not only for his own interests, but for the interests of others. This is what mutual submission looks like. Now, the picture of this comes from Jesus because it goes on to say, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who was though in the very form of God and equal, equal with God, did not think such equality to be grasped, but look at what he did. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. That is what it looked like for him to submit to the Father's will, but also submit to our needs because it says in Romans, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He submitted his desires and his wills when he in the garden said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And if we're supposed to be followers of Jesus, then that means we should have the fragrance of mutual submission reeking from us as well. This is what it says in, in the NIV application commentary. It says, mutual submission requires the humility to listen, tolerate, be taught, and be enriched by the worship of others so long as it is within legitimate bounds. That's the part everybody was waiting to hear, right? Like, wait, there's, there's limits to this thing. Of course there are. 
But there's this sense in which now he's specifically breaking down Ephesians 5 in this, which a little shout out to the Ephesians series. We're going to go in, y'all, on Tuesday. But nevertheless, this idea is mutual submission. Look at what he says. Requires the humility to listen, to tolerate, to be taught and be enriched by other people who are very different from yourself. And especially at a church like ours where we come from various nationalities, cultures, backgrounds and expectations. I'll give you an example. You know, as pastors, we get to hear this from all extremes. Like we, we you know, had conversations with, with women who've been frustrated uh, that a guy, and so the guy got frustrated because it was like, he asked her out to like Starbucks, like, hey, you know, after church, yo, sis, you know, can we go to, you know, coffee and I can get to know you a little better. And she wanted, she was like, okay, well, we need to sit down and define this relationship. And he's like, I'm not even sure if I want to be in a relationship. So what is it? But, you know, so he's thinking that and he's kind of confused and he's frustrated with us, right? And frustrated with her, rather. But then on the other side, I've experienced women being frustrated because a dude will come back to his guys after he invited sis to coffee and be like, yeah, so I just went on a date with so-and-so. And she like, I, we, we did? We went on a date? I didn't know we went on a date. And so there's like confusion even among, so, so here's the point, right? You're like, okay, what does that have to do with something? It just got real tight and quiet up in here right now. I just want y'all to notice, I see you. But here's the point. <laughs> Who's right? Who's wrong? Well, the reality is when you got people coming from different places in the world and different teachings from their parents, nobody's necessarily right or wrong. It just takes listening and engaging and saying, you know, like, hey, this is, I got to bring that to the conversation, if I'm feeling some type of way, not just talk about it to somebody. We have to be patient with each other because this is, we, we come from so many different angles and perspectives that you, you can't just assume that just because somebody's worshiping with you two rows away that we have the same expectations and assumptions of what that means and looks like. Not to mention we're on various different parts of our spiritual journey, as we just heard. So the gospel is reenacted by us when we submit to one another. And if you're like, yeah, but you understand, so-and-so has been talking about me. Well, Jesus was talked about too. He still submitted himself to the needs of us. This is what someone has said about Koinonia, Deborah Van Dusen Hunsinger. She says, Koinonia, which is the Christ, uh, Greek word for fellowship, communion. He said, Koinonia is the fellowship that makes pastoral care possible. When Koinonia flourishes, so does pastoral care. What she's saying is there's an extent to which if I am not experiencing fellowship, communion as it relates to mutual submission and actually being honest and real with my brothers and sisters, that there's only so far that I can experience the blessing of what it means to be cared for by a pastor. Okay, I, I, let me make that plain. Some of the distrust that exists between male, female, we get the shrapnel of that because if there's issues with trusting authority or trusting men or trusting whoever, the community, then that impacts the way that someone might experience and even the assumptions about the decisions that we make. And so this mutual submission thing means that we all have to get to a place where we bring ourselves to the table. And even as pastors, as we're servant leaders, right? We're shepherds. We have to, you know, be able to listen and understand and in that way submit to you as well. 
Now, Patrick Lencioni in his book, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, actually explains why this is a problem. He talks about five. We're only going to look at three today. But one of the reasons, main reasons why teams or communities don't flourish, right, why they, why they don't have formed blessed alliances, he says, is an absence of trust, a fear of conflict, and a lack of commitment. Mm. So the first point is that mutual submission requires mutual trust. If I don't believe the, that you have my best interest in, in mind and at heart, then I'm going to assume the worst about your intentions and your decisions. I'm not even going to give you an opportunity to explain why this decision happened or why is this thing like this. I'm just going to assume that I know because you like that other person that did this to me. You just like that girl that did this, so now I don't trust her, and that's why I don't trust you, and so now this is why you must have done that. Oh, you just like that dude that used to do this to me, so now when I see, oh, why is it the church like this? And that must be because you're just like them. When we don't have mutual trust, everything else breaks down. Trust is the foundation. The second is mutual submission requires the courage to confront. It requires courage to confront. You see, the other issue that, that we have is that, well, people oftentimes, that, you know, they're cool. We come into church together. We kind of join, and it's like, yo, this is kind of good. And then we get into a conflict, and somebody wants to leave. I have news for you. Conflict is when your church membership begins. We don't start to be church. We don't start to do church until there's conflict. Because that's where we get to live out Matthew 18, when Jesus says, if one of you, if your brother has offended you, then go to him. And in doing so, to try to win, not the argument, but your brother or your sister. That's where it gets started. If I flee at the very sign of confrontation, then I don't even give the opportunity for the Holy Spirit to do a work in us. And that's where the last one, it takes a mutual commitment. It takes a commitment to each other to bear with each other, to forgive one another when we misunderstand and miscommunicate. And I love, you know, I wish you got at the four o'clock, we heard this beautiful story uh, of that aspect working itself out from Mike and Janelle. So here's the reality. To be the blessed alliance, we must go from talking about each other to talking to each other. And that takes courage. That takes patience. It takes confidence that God will ultimately, you know, restore the relationship. And it takes a sense of belief and believing the best about each other. So which dysfunction do you struggle with? Because we all struggle with one of them. Is it an absence of trust? Is it a fear of conflict? I just don't, I just want to play nice. Because what we end up doing is we end up playing pretend. You know that fake smile you give somebody that you really ain't trying to talk to? but then you end up talking to somebody else about why you don't like them and they have no idea, but you don't know it. Or a lack of commitment. You just dip as soon as it gets tough. The third and last point is the blessed alliance results in mutual flourishing. <laughs> it results in mutual flourishing. Everyone is better. Everyone is improved. Everyone, and we see Jesus Christ himself reveal and reflect this in his life. In Romans, Paul talks about him as the second Adam who comes to restore what, the first, what was broken with the first Adam, which was this blessed alliance. We see this throughout the decisions that Jesus makes in his ministry, but probably most clearly and profoundly for our time is John chapter 4. In John chapter 4, it says, a woman of Samaria came to draw water. 
Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, she asked him, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. A little bit of backdrop is they had beef like Crips and Bloods that went back centuries. There was racial, racial animus. There was uh, religious and theological animosity between the two. And on top of that, there's this male-female dynamic happening. And so when Jesus says that he had to go to Samaria, he intentionally chose to go to this place where all of these walls and barriers and cultural assumptions of what shouldn't have happened were broken down by him talking to this woman and simply asking her, can you give me a drink of water? Now, you see her reaction. She's like, whoa, I'm a Samaritan. I'm a woman. Why are you talking to me? And look at Jesus' response. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who was saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him, and he would give you living water. So then they end up having this conversation. Oh, you think you're better than us because you were Jews, so you, your water better than our water. And he's like, look, you're not thinking about this from the spiritual realm. You're thinking about it uh, from a natural, but that's understandable because you've been hurt by men, Right? Bring your husband. Oh, uh, I don't have a husband. Yeah, you're, you're right, you're right. You have five. And the one that you're with right now that you're shacking up with, he's not your husband. You're right. And she's like, oh, it's going to be like that. Huh? Okay, we, we pulling people cards, right? So then you're like, don't worry, though. I'm not here to call you out. I'm here to call you up. He says, um, so she's like, well, when the Messiah comes, it's going to make everything all right. He says, well, I am he. I am the Messiah. It's one of the few times in the entire New Testament that Jesus in his earthly ministry directly tells somebody, I'm the Messiah. And so then, right, fascinating thing happens. She goes and goes and tells the people, the tenant town, hey, y'all, y'all got to learn about this. Tell, <laughs> this guy just told me everything about myself. I think he's the Messiah. Meanwhile, but look at what the church says. <laughs> In John 4, 27, it says, just then his disciples arrived and they were amazed, amazed that he was talking with the woman. Yet no one asked or said, what do you want or why are you talking with her? You see what's happening there? It's this ironic moment where like the, Jesus, the disciples are trying to hold Jesus accountable. Like they're like, yo, um, Jesus, can I pull you aside for a second? I mean, y'all alone talking together, you know, what's up? You, and he's looking at them like, All right, Really? I'm trying to give you a picture. I'm trying to sit down and teach you something that I am coming to restore blessed alliances that were broken. And so look at what happens. She comes back. The whole town is listening and engaging with her. And, and y'all might have missed this, but it was high noon. It was, it, was, it was at the hottest point of the day. Now, people didn't go to draw water at the hottest point of the day. Why was this woman there? Because she was an ashamed outcast. She was avoiding everybody. That's why she was there by herself at the well. Her experience with Jesus was so transformative that she goes from hiding from the people to go getting them and saying, yo, go up. Let me tell you about a man that told me everything about myself, but now he has lifted me up. And now I'm ready to tell you and became an evangelist to the whole community. They asked Jesus to stay for two more days and they all became followers of him. And if you look from time, whether it's Mary Magdalene, whether it's, you know, Mary, uh, his mother, whether whoever it is, the first woman to see him get resurrected, the women that were at the foot of the cross, whether it's the tax collector who nobody messed with him or any of the other people, the fishermen that they just thought didn't know anything, Jesus chooses the outcasts. He chooses the people that other, other people don't look at and says that we have to, we're better together. 
And that's what he puts us together as his community to do. Jesus calls the church to be the community that reflects his glory and is better together by living out the blessed alliance. That's what he called. We are the manifestation of that ministry. That's why we have to get this right. That's what is at stake. Now, fortunately, I've been able to see this in my own life play itself out. Before uh, we moved here, we were uh, in Indiana leading a music ministry. And... Um, and in that ministry, uh, we had bands come through, and everybody was single that we were working with. Um, and one band in particular, um, there was two guys, three, you know, four girls. Some of y'all may have heard of it, Level 316, right? Now, there was this interesting, so we, we, we would, we, they were college students uh, when we first met them, and then we ended up working and partnering. But here's the deal. <laughs> the one in the middle with the, with the, that's holding the vinyl, she, uh, KV, she was the DJ, and I remember the day we had to assign who was going to be the music director of the band, who was going to make the shots about musical selection, and we chose her. And just in making the decisions about what needed to happen in terms of the group, Steve and Chris, who had been solo MCs and men in their own, like they kind of got, you know, it was tough for them at times to have their ideas be shaped and even changed and, and edited or not. And they had to wrestle through that. But the thing that was amazing was over the course of those three years, for years together, they were able to make beautiful music together because they were submitted one to another. First album came out, charted at eight on Gospel Billboard. Hey, I'm just saying, you know, we were doing our thing. But the bigger point is that when we are better together and we all flourish when we submit one to another. One of the folks who was part of that community, her name is Essence, she's 29 years old. And uh, I was having this conversation with, uh, with her about this. And, and, and she said something to me. I said, hey, do you mind if I just share this with, uh, with our church? Because I think this will bless people. She said, sure. And this is what she's been thinking about in her own life. She says, I believe if we singles had full, healthy, robust, multi-generational relationships, we wouldn't long for marriage as much. I don't ask myself, am I called to singleness? Do I have the gift of singleness. She says, healthy people and healthy relationships should be the goal. I think the church needs to apply the same logic to its teaching on singleness. The same logic that says that, hey, we're about health in whatever format that that finds itself in. And so oftentimes the search, just because of the culture that we're in and the air that we breathe, is that somehow everything is going to be solved and everything I really need, all of my hopes and dreams and aspirations will be accomplished if I just am in a relationship. And in actuality, what Essence is saying is that, yo, I have all, much of what I need, not everything, but all, much of what I need in the context of community. Mutual flourishing means it is still not good for the man or the woman to be alone. The last piece of this is that we get to see the full picture. That Remember that Azer concept that this warrior that God has called you know, Eve to be with Adam? Well, the amazing thing is at the end of the story, we get to see that Revelation 21.9 says that the lamb is coming for his bride. <laughs> so in a sense, he's calling the church his azer. We are collectively the azers, that the blessed alliance is ultimately fulfilled in Christ as the groom coming for the bride, and that when we come together, we reflect what is ultimately supposed to be. No, this, this doesn't just bring us back to, oh, man, we're still talking about marriage again. No, actually what it says is that in heaven, we get to see that marriage on earth was just a, a, a pale reflection of what intimacy with Christ and his church is gonna be like. We kinda of got it twisted sometimes. And so, my brothers and sisters, what, 
we have to change our posture with each other from what do I want from you to what do I want for you? This question has changed the way I look at people. You know, what's interesting is, you know, you go on the streets, especially in the summertime and see people dressed in different ways, showing a lot of different things. And, and, and this question that I ask myself, am, am I looking at you for what I want from you or what I want for you? See, when you make eye contact with somebody and you make a connection and you let them know, I see you, I value you as a person, that's something for them. But if you're just ogling them to extract some sense of satisfaction, that's wanting something from them. When we come into church, right, and we want to interact and build with somebody, are we looking simply at them as potential cuffing material? Or are we looking at them as a brother or sister who might need a word from me? So this is our challenge to be the Blessed Alliance. And it's going to be a rocky road as we move forward. This doesn't mean everything works out. But if we bear with one another and mutually submit to each other, then we will get there by God's glory. So what I want to do now is have us an opportunity to, to pray. Um, the worship team will come up and there's people in the back. And, and, and as we close out this series, I really want us to just think about and ask. There, there's some conversations that need to be had. There's some conflict that needs to stop being avoided. There's some trust that needs to be built up and established. There's some commitments that need to be made. And so wherever you stand with that, we just ask that you would, you know, go to the back and just pray. And, and, and as you do that, we'll worship together and ask God that this will be a place that somebody will come through those doors and go, man, I don't know what they have, but the way that I see people interact with each other here is not unlike anything I've ever seen before. I want some of that. And it says that men will see their good deeds and glorify the Father in heaven. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that the Blessed Alliance is your idea. Thank you that you have called us beyond our culture, called us beyond the bad experiences and the brokenness that we've had. You've called us to be a blessing. Would you come and speak to us in this time as we go and pray and as we just worship you in song? Would you help us to really trust and believe that we're better together? In Christ's name, amen.